This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Impoga, and here is what's coming up. Uh, for Sudan, it complicates efforts to mediate that conflict, uh, considering that Kenya has been a key player in the IGAD quartet. It also opens, of course, another area of potential conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia. That was Hassan Kamenje, the head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies on diplomatic disputes in the region. Also, opposition leader Osman Sonko appears to be out of contention in Senegal's elections. And the U.S. and allies aim to protect Red Sea shipping. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. In Senegal, lawyers for opposition leader Osman Sonko say they will continue the fight after the Supreme Court rejected his appeal to his libel conviction in a ruling Thursday. Sonko, a former mayor of Zingshom and leader of the opposition Pastel Patriots, was convicted of defaming tourism minister Manimbaye Mananyang. Legal and political observers say the ruling effectively bars the opposition leader from running in next month's presidential election. For more on the latest developments, reaction, and what the ruling means for Sonko's presidential ambitions, VOS Peter Kalote reached a reporter, Alpha Jalo, in the Senegalese capital, Dakar. It was a marathon ruling, but at the end, uh, Mr. Sonko's I mean, appeal case was rejected by the Supreme Court. And uh, this means that the May judgment has to be maintained. The only element that was removed from it is that, I mean, the detention of Mr. Sonko in the default of paying the 200 uh, million CFA franc fine uh, for damages for Minister Mambayang. Will there be any consequences of this ruling from the Supreme Court for Sonko? Yeah, it is, it is very clear now. Mr. Sonko and his lawyers, they know that Mr. Sonko cannot, I mean, take part in the I mean, forthcoming presidential election slated on the 25th of February. Uh, but on the other hand, his lawyers say that they, they will fight on and uh, because they believe that all these charges are politically motivated. Has the supporters reacted following the ruling from the Supreme Court? Not at all. Even, I mean, in the southern city of uh, Zikansor, where Mr. Sonko Hills and where he's a mayor, there were no reports of any protest. In Dakar also, there was no report of any protest. Although on social media, people were, you know, reacting angrily, saying that, you know, if Mr. Sonko is not allowed to contest the elections, they are going to disrupt, I mean, the February presidential polls. What is now left for Osman Sonko in the political landscape of Senegal? Basically, what are his options? Now, the, the options are now many. You know, initially, just about a couple last month, uh, he designated his, I mean, um, his, his deputy, I mean, Bashir Jumai Fai, run instead if he is, I mean, not allowed to run. But uh, that also, there was some problem because Bashir Jumai Fai is also in jail because he was also, I mean, sent to jail for, you know, charges of, I mean, creating public disorder and so forth. So right now, the, 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 the only option that people think that Mr. Sonko is going to, I mean, rally for an other independent candidate or any of the candidates, especially they have mentioned one 
former minister in the in the government of you know President Ablaywade, one Abid Sheikh, because even Mr. Sonko I mean sent him some of his members of Mr. Sonko's I mean parliamentarians to back him during the nomination. That's what that was a reporter Alpha Jello in Dakar. He was speaking with my colleague Peter Klote. The Horn of Africa is facing two diplomatic crises. Somalia has recalled its ambassador from Ethiopia, while Sudan has recalled its ambassador from Kenya. Both countries are complaining of alleged interference in their internal affairs and threats to their sovereignty. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Experts warn that the two diplomatic crises, one between Kenya and Sudan and the other between Ethiopia and Somalia, could threaten the stability of East Africa. Sudan's government, led by the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, has expressed its displeasure with Kenya after the government there gave a warm welcome to Burhan's rival, the leader of Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hameti. Kenya received Dagalo Wednesday as part of its effort to find a peaceful settlement to the nearly nine-month-old Sudan conflict. Angered by the move, Sudan's government recalled its ambassador from Nairobi. Al-Burhan sees Kenya as favoring Hameti in the conflict and has called for Nairobi not to be part of mediation efforts spearheaded by regional bloc IGAD. In the other crisis, Somali leaders were angered by the agreement this week between Ethiopia and the breakaway region of Somaliland. The deal will give landlock Ethiopia access to the sea and allows it to establish a military base in Somaliland, which Somalia considers part of its territory. To protest the deal, Mogadishu recalled its ambassador from Addis Ababa. The head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies, Hassan Khananji, explains what the latest diplomatic spats mean for a region that has a history of border disputes and conflicts. Uh, for Sudan, it complicates efforts to mediate that conflict, uh, considering that Kenya has been a key player in the IGAD quartate. It also opens, of course, another area of a potential conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia, uh, considering that uh, just in recent weeks, Mogadishu had made efforts to restart the reconciliation talks with Meher Geisa. And so what that does, it torpedoes all those efforts and I think sends uh, the entire you know, region into a tailspin with regard to diplomacy. Both Somalia and Sudan have long struggled with internal divisions and conflict which have displaced millions. Nasongo Muliro, an international relations and diplomacy lecturer in Kenya, says some foreign powers, including countries in the Gulf, are fueling the potential conflict between the African countries. So many foreign actors are at play in the region. And you can see that it is creating alliances that are now also degenerating into interstate conflicts. Because the Horn of Africa was uh, basically suffering from uh, internal conflict, but now we see a spike of interstate conflicts, whether they are not uh, uh, armed, but then there are conflicts between states. Molero says countries like Kenya and Ethiopia should not be taking advantage of the weak central governments in Sudan and Somalia to engage local leaders and pursue their own interests in those countries. We are seeing a situation where the tradition that has been there of engaging the government of the day, no matter how weak it is, but now it is almost changing. We are looking at uh, Hemeti and Burhan. We should be, in any case, Africa should be behind Burhan. But you can see that the states are selectively 
almost recognizing uh, Hemeti. The African Union and other international actors are calling for the escalation of tensions and respect for each nation's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Sudan recalled its ambassador to Kenya following an official reception for Sudanese paramilitary leader Mohamed Hamdam Dagalo, also known as Hamiti, in Nairobi on Wednesday. Foreign Affairs Minister Al Al Sadiq told the state news agency Suna that Sudan recalled its envoy yesterday to protest the official reception for what he called the rebel militia. He added that the Kenyan government had failed to condemn abuses committed by the RSF in the nine month old conflict. Sadiq mentioned that his office would consult with Ambassador Kamal Jubari and reevaluate Sudan Kenya relations. Sadiq went on to accuse Kenya of supporting a rebellion in Sudan and conspiring with hostile regional actors against the embattled Northeast African country. It's not the first time Sudan's military led government has accused Kenya of supporting the RSF. Back in July, Lieutenant General Yasser Al Atta, Assistant Commander in Chief of the Sudan Armed Forces, accused Kenyan President William Ruto of favoring the parliamentary forces after Ruto suggested deploying East African peacekeeping troops to Sudan. Sudan criticized Ruto for interfering in the country's internal affairs. Ruto denies the allegations. Sudan also has repeatedly rejected Ruto's leadership of the IGAD subcommittee called the Quartet Group, tasked with mediating an end to Sudan's conflict. Dagalo was in Nairobi a day after he signed an agreement with a coalition of Sudanese civilian activ activists aimed at ending the conflict between the RSF and the Sudan Armed Forces. Former Sudanese ambassador to the United States, Nuruddin Satin is a member of the civilian coalition known as the Takadum. He told VOA yesterday that the Sudanese army and its leader, General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, has not responded to two letters asking the army to join the peace talks. The war has killed thousands of civilians and led to what aid organizations say is one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is set to arrive today in the Middle East his fourth visit to the region since the war between Israel and Hamas began on October 7th. The State Department says his focus will be on the management of Gaza after the war. The latest survey of Palestinian attitudes by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research says the Palestinian Authority has seen its support for fall across the territories to 17% from 26% three months ago. The survey showed 88% of respondents said they would like President Mahmoud Abbas to resign. However, the U.S. is relying on the Palestinian Authority to rule Gaza after the war. Khaled El-Ginde, director of Middle East Institute Program on Palestinian-Israel Affairs, explains the complexities of the issue to VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shanawi. Because they haven't really paid attention to internal Palestinian politics 
at all, frankly. They haven't really looked at what drives the legitimacy or popularity or credibility of Palestinian leaders. They have their own measures. They look at things like uh, security cooperation with Israel and abiding by past agreements. Those are the standards that the United States looks at. They don't really look at the domestic uh, credibility or legitimacy of the Palestinian leadership. Anyone who's followed that issue for the past 15 years or more knows that Mahmoud Abbas is simply weak and and not seen as as credible or legitimate by a majority of Palestinians and he's been becoming more and more weak with each day so again it's there's a disconnect between where US policy is and reality so the United States really doesn't have any alternative to Mahmoud Abbas and his failing authority because for them, obviously, Hamas cannot remain in power. They don't want Israel to remain indefinitely uh, as an occupying power inside the Gaza Strip. And so the only alternative left is Mahmoud Abbas, even if it's not a very credible or effective option. So what kind of practical scenario you see for Gaza after the war? Well, I'm not sure what after the war means. I, I think where most people are expecting, rather than an end to the fighting, that we'll see a transition to a different phase from you know, indiscriminate carpet bombing and massive ground forces to something else. We don't know what that is, but we're likely to see a continued insurgency by Hamas and other armed groups inside Gaza against the Israeli presence there for the foreseeable future. So I don't really know what after the fighting means, if the fighting will just continue most likely in one form or another, perhaps not with the same level of intensity, but I don't expect it to end anytime soon. And so all of that what that means is that reconstruction or rehabilitation, humanitarian assistance, all of those things are going to be greatly complicated by the continued fighting, which is likely to be indefinite. But do you expect Palestinians to leave Gaza into Sinai as Israel is planning? I think it remains a distinct possibility in the short term. I think as long as this level of intensity of bombing uh, continues, as long as uh, Israel continues to use starvation as as a weapon, and we know that they're doing that because Human Rights Watch and others have reported on that. If that continues, I think it's not only possible, but probable that we'll see a mass exodus of Palestinians from Gaza into Sinai. Exactly what the tipping point is, is hard to say. But right now, the Israelis are resisting allowing more humanitarian assistance the way the United States would like. I think it's clear that they want to continue using uh, starvation and the spread of disease and the, the suffering of the civilian population as a form of pressure. I think they they see it as a way to pressure that eventually the, the population will turn on Hamas. If they're so hungry and so desperate, they will turn on Hamas. That's not likely to happen. What is more likely is that they will be forced to flee over the border. So really, I think in the next few weeks, as the situation becomes even more catastrophic, that becomes a distinct possibility. That was Khalid El-Ginde, director of Middle East Institute's program on Palestinian-Israeli affairs, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi. On Thursday, a Houthi drone boat laden with explosives blew up 
in the Red Sea as it attempted to attack ships traversing international waters. VOA's Pentagon correspondent, Carla Bob, has more on how the U.S. and other nations are responding to these attacks. After a string of Houthi militant attacks against commercial and military vessels in the Red Sea, the U.S. and more than 20 nations are participating in Operation Prosperity Guardian to protect ships sailing in international waters. John Kirby is the National Security Coordinator for Strategic Communications. All told, these U.S. and coalition ships and aircraft contribute to an impressive array I'm sorry, an impressive air and missile defense capability, as well as robust intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, not to mention offensive and defensive military power. U.S. officials say several American, British, and French warships are patrolling near commercial vessels in the volatile waterways, with Greece and Denmark expected to send warships there soon to provide more protection. Major General Pat Ryder, Pentagon Press Secretary. These are illegal, dangerous attacks. Since November 18th, there have been now 25 attacks against merchant vessels transiting the southern Red Sea and, and the Gulf of Aden. The U.S. and about a dozen other nations this week warned the Houthis of targeted military action if the attacks do not stop. Again, John Kirby. The United States does not seek conflict with any nation or actor in the Middle East, nor do we want to see the war between Israel and Hamas widen in the region. But neither will we shrink from the task of defending ourselves, our interests, our partners, or the free flow of international commerce. Attacks will likely continue. And the leader of Yemen's Houthis warned this week that any American ship that targets the militants will become the Houthis' next target. Carla Bab, VOA News, the Pentagon. South Africa's ex-Olympic runner, Oscar Pistorius was released from jail on parole today, almost 11 years after he shot dead his girlfriend, River Stenkamp, in a crime that gripped the world. The French news agency, AFP, says after serving more than half his sentence, the 37-year-old double amputee was quietly whisked away from a prison on the outskirts of the capital, Pretoria. As a condition of his parole, Pistorius will not be allowed to speak to the media, and he's being restricted to staying within the Pretoria district where his uncle lives. The DR Congo has a history of disputed elections that can turn violent, and many residents have little confidence in the country's institutions. Before the results were announced last Sunday, opposition candidates, including businessman Moise Katumbi, who finished second in the official count, said they rejected the outcome and urged people to mobilize. Violence was already flaring in parts of the country. The National Election Commission, known as CENI, declared President Felix Shishkedi the winner, saying he had 73% of the vote. The next candidate, Moise Katumbi, had about 18% of the vote. There were 20 other opposition candidates. Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the African Center for Strategic Studies, spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi about the prospects of violence erupting. 
Well, the Congolese elections in uh, 2006, 2011, 2018 were all tainted by massive and widespread fraud, which was a trigger for violence. So there has been an uptick of violence ever since Seni declared its results, right? There's been an upsurge of protests which are being responded to by the security services in uh, places like Goma, in places like Isangandi and others. And this would be consistent with what has happened uh, before. And the reason why you have that violence is because uh, number one, there's a sense by the Congolese population that, you know, they do their job. They turn up, they show patience, they show endurance, despite all the delays and the administrative chaos and so on. But people do turn up about, I think it was 44 million, right, that registered. Uh, so they're doing their job. They are uh, conducting voter education. They are running their own parallel uh, tabulation. They're running their tallies. They're observing their elections and so on. They're doing their job. But ultimately, the sense is that uh, their vote doesn't really count, right? So that is the one element, you know, that sense of anger and uh, disaffection that their vote doesn't really count for much. But then secondly, you also have uh, nefarious armed groups, armed uh, actors who've got no interest in uh, democratization whatsoever. But what they do is they exploit those grievances to step up attacks. And indeed, this is what we've seen during the registration exercise. We also saw this right before the elections. And now, a day after Seni made its announcement, there's been an upsurge of violence in M23 uh, controlled areas. So they're taking advantage of the fact that you have these grievances in the country. But the root cause of those grievances is the inability of the Congolese authorities to deliver free, fair, credible, and inclusive elections. So is there any possibility for a rerun of these elections? Well, this is very difficult because uh, the Congolese uh, laws, voting procedure, do not allow that. They they allow for a one-round election, which, by the way, many people find very problematic. So that's that's the one thing. Secondly, the government has been very steadfast and uh, has refused to entertain any uh, calls for a rerun or an annulment. So it will be a very difficult uh, bar to to cross. And then thirdly, just as we've seen in other elections, you have congratulatory messages now coming in hard and fast from the region, from, uh, you know, Congo's neighbors and so on. So this just sends a signal to the authorities that they can actually remain steadfast and refuse, never mind an annulment, but a verification of the results. And with a constitutional court that is subservient to the ruling authorities, the chances that we will see a rerun or an annulment, in my opinion, are very, very low. And that is going to, uh, to instigate more violence. Any role for the African Union on that respect? Yes, I think the African Union needs to be more serious in observing and implementing its own standards. The African Union has conventions. It has a treaty on democracy, elections and governance. It uh, has, has observed uh, elections for decades. And its charter, the African Union Charter, makes it very clear that there must be certain minimum standards in delivering free, fair, and uh, credible elections, and that the failure thereof is a major trigger point for violence. So what the Congolese citizens are expecting the African Union to do, at a minimum, is to adhere to its own standards that have been accepted and that have been ratified and that are in force to implement those standards and not to conduct itself in a way that will ultimately and effectively legitimize what, by all intents and purposes, has been a fraudulent exercise. And I think that's what Congolese expect more than anything else. That was Paul Dantulia, a research associate at the at African Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi.
the influential Catholic Bishops Conference in the DRC, and some Protestant churches yesterday demanded an independent inquiry be opened into the irregularities and alleged legal violations observed during the December general elections. Among the problems were hours-long delays in voting, malfunctioning machines, and allegations of ballot staffing. The problems led to an unscheduled extension of voting beyond the constitutionally set December 20th election day. Meanwhile, South Africa's Justice Ministry said today it will reopen an inquiry into the slayings of four anti-apartheid activists. The so-called Craddock Four were abducted and killed while returning home to the southern town of Chadock in June 1985 after a meeting. Their bodies were discovered days later, badly burned with multiple stab wounds. The security forces under the apartheid regime were suspected of being behind the killings, but no one has been brought to justice. The French news agency AFP reports that Justice Minister Ronald Lamola said it was in the interest of justice to finally bring closure to the families of the deceased. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at vioafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vande, and engineer, Jumbe Hamza, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.